I have a little confession to make. I'm told it's good for the soul. My wife and I find that a good way for us to unwind or de-stress is to watch an uplifting or inspiring movie. Some of my favorites usually involve sports like The Rookie, baseball, Miracle, about hockey, uh, all kinds of good stuff. Sometimes a decent comedy or even, dare I say it, I'm sorry fellas, a chick flick. I've caved over the years. And as an aside, when we both contracted COVID in early May, the unbelievable fatigue, I was disinclined to leave my recliner for long periods of time once I was there, coupled with the fact that my wife had the remote control to the television, meant that I ended up watching more episodes of the Great British Baking Show than I ever intended in my entire life. You know, you kind of get into it after a while. You say, so who's going to get eliminated today? And then I ask the wrong question. When are you going to make desserts like that? As they say, don't go there. There is in all of this a challenge, of course, in, a finding, in a finding appropriate material, and I'm sure we all realize that. More than once, we've had to ask as we thought, well, let's this try this, it looks interesting. And then we look at each other and say, have you had enough of this? Yeah, I've had enough of this. So that happens too, so off it goes. Sadly, that's also the way things are in our culture, as we know. It can be tough to find stuff that we know is good and suitable, appropriate, uplifting, and so on. But sometimes we've even found something that really speaks to us on more than just a downtime or de-stress or unwinding way. Once in a while, a production speaks to something deeper. I admit that it reaches me on a sporting level often. Probably two of my favorite movies of all time are Chariots of Fire and Miracle because of the inspiring story of overcoming odds of being underdogs coming through. I enjoy the story of Billy Mills, the Sioux Indian from Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, who out of nowhere won the 10,000 meters at the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo, the only American to ever have done so. His kick, the last half lap, was astonishing. One of the ex announcers, commentators, got so excited, he was screaming into the microphone and he was fired afterwards because he didn't conduct himself with appropriate decorum. Astonishing. I'd like to relate a bit of one of those rare finds as I begin today because, as you might expect, my wife finds other categories just as inspiring for her, sometimes involving teaching or music, which shouldn't come as a surprise to those who know her. Someone asked me a question on the last day of classes for FI in 2021 on Wednesday. They asked a question. We were milling around in the classroom and the break room, and I would, was asked if I had ever taught a class in that kind of setting. And I had to stop and think. I'm sure like 
All of our pastors, I've given hundreds of sermons. I don't know the number anymore. At one time, I kept track. I'm sure it's over, probably over 2,000 by now in the last 48 years in the ministry. I've spoken at public lectures, as again, a lot of our pastors have most maybe, when readers of the church literature were invited to those events. Most of our pastors have done similar things, like conducting Bible studies that were somewhat like classes, prepared spokesman club and graduate club teaching sessions, held leadership meetings, engaged in hundreds of counselings, but taught a class in a setting exactly like this. I don't know that I have in quite the same way until this year. So that makes me a raw rookie. It also is a help that I'm married to a pro. My wife, Janelle, was a substitute teacher for 17 years in the public school system, and she taught piano and voice lessons for decades before that, actually beginning teaching piano when she was 14. So maybe a movie that we first watched many years ago spoke to us both. It was titled Mr. Holland's Opus. The movie was released in 1995 and received multiple nominations, although not awards, for Golden Globe Awards and an Oscar nomination for Richard Dreyfuss, who played Mr. Holland, for Best Actor. It's listed on American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Cheers list. The plot revolves around Glenn Holland, a 30-year-old musician and aspiring composer in Oregon who, in 1964, got married. And having been recently married, he realized that composing as a means of earning a living, well, let's just say you don't want to quit your day job. It's a little bit feast and famine most of the time, and very few make it big and make a livable wage doing that. So he decided to accept a job as a high school music teacher so that he could spend more time with his wife, their soon-to-arrive young son, and in the meantime, he kept tinkering with writing a symphony. He was into especially jazz influences, one of his favorites was John Coltrane, famous American saxophonist. In fact, he named his son Coltrane. They called him Cole for short. So he kept tinkering with writing this symphony, but it was definitely filled with jazz-type overtones. It was never quite finished, according to the movie plot, but the introduction and the opening chords that we heard over and over again to what he would call the American symphony were quite impressive. In fact, the score for the movie, written by or composed by Michael Common, included that piece, and that arrangement, his arrangement, won a Grammy Award in 1997 for Best Instrumental Adaptation. But life happens. Life happens. Their young son, Cole, they discover, is almost entirely deaf by about 90%. Sadly, then Mr. Holland, Glenn Holland, can't really share his love of music in the same way with his young son, nor with his wife, because though she was loving and supportive and, de and devoted, she was herself not musically talented. She ends up, 
as the plot spins out, almost single-handedly raising their son, while her husband struggles on many fronts, feeling isolated, becoming emotionally distanced from them both, even refusing to properly learn American Sign Language. Time passes. He finds a friend in the school's football coach, and together they blend their talents to help create a marching band that plays at school football games, and it's quite an outstanding production. The school's principal is supportive and fights to retain adequate funding for the arts programs in the school in an era of shrinking state government support and reduced programs in some of those areas. The vice principal, on the other hand, is all for pouring the available funding into projects for literacy and math and sciences. Not to be denied, of course, but the principal thought there was a wider audience and a wider talent and a wider education that was given with the arts programs. The vice principal was willing to sacrifice them if needed. Fast forward 30 years to the early 1990s. The principal retires. The vice principal becomes the principal. And it happens. The funding for the music department is cut. Mr. Holland is to be laid off. On his last day at the school, his wife and son come to the school. He has repaired his relationship with them over the years to help him clear out his office and music room. They ask him to stop by the school auditorium for just a moment, and when he opens the door, he is greeted with a thunderous standing ovation. Thirty years' worth of students are in the auditorium, with the best of them seated as an orchestra with their instruments at the ready. A former struggling clarinetist, now the governor of the state, walks in. She addresses him and the students and the families, hands him the conductor's baton and takes her seat in the orchestra. Without spilling all the beans, I probably should have said, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. I know, too late. Suffice it to say that it becomes clear that his efforts were not in vain. He had accomplished his goal. By his efforts to educate thousands of young men and women in life, he had accomplished his goal. As the governor tells him, we are your symphony. In a way, Mr. Holland finds that education is reaching the goal. I've been asked to teach modern church history at FI. This was my rookie season, so we'll see. I'm told that it takes three years to get it down pat, and I already know several changes that need to be made. But let's go back in time in church history. But let's go back even further. I don't want to step on any toes of those who teach early church history, but that's where we're headed. So please, if you are in the audience, you want to cover your ears and hum, I understand. I'll try not to mess it up. Let's find a time of challenge, of unexpected events, and in this case, persecution. Turn back to the book of Acts. 
Acts chapter 6. And Stephen, it says, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. It says there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, disputing with him, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him into the council. The false accusations pour out in the next three verses, and those who see him look at a peaceful face, someone who's not agitated, who's not roiled, who's not intent on retaliating. And they don't quite know what to do with it. You know how the story ends, of course, with the mob dragging him out of the city and stoning him to death, the New Testament Church of God's first martyr. But a mere footnote to this story begins a new story. In Acts chapter 7, in verse 57, as Stephen is given a vision to sustain him, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Our first introduction to the man later and better known as the Apostle Paul is right here. There are a couple of verses in the next chapter, chapter that reference what he was doing. It says, now Saul, verse 1, chapter 8, was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. Entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This was his life. This was his goal. This was his chosen profession. He was a Pharisee of the first order. Chapter 9, and then Saul, it says, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Here was his early focus in the first two verses. His interest in life, his goal. He had a zeal for being a Pharisee, for seeing things through their eyes, the way they understood the scriptures. He was talented. He had chosen his profession and he was good at it. But his life would not turn out to head that direction at all. Something like Mr. Holland took a different turn. 
When that light shone around him, it says he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. His education was about to begin. I've wondered from time to time as I've read through Paul's letters, some of the record in the book of Acts, I've wondered how many times those words echoed in his mind, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. I think Paul was a man who felt deeply what had happened. He needed to be educated, really educated. Oh, he had the training from the world in the profession he had chosen. Unlike the original apostles who were thought of as untrained and unlearned by the Pharisees of the day, this was a man who was one of their own. He needed to be re-educated. Re-educated by the greatest educator of all time. In chapter 9, we drop down to verse 10. We have an interesting sidebar, a side story of a very righteous and a very brave man, Ananias. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying, and in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. (laughs) What would you think if you were in his shoes? Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority to bind, or from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. The answer, you go. He's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him, I will teach him, I will educate him in how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. A very brave man. He may have seen in Saul's possession the documents allowing him to cart off believers. Who knows? Who knows? He was on the road to Damascus. He had asked letters, it says, from this other individual, the high priest, to the synagogues of Damascus. They were in his saddlebags. Interesting thought. You know, the vice principal who was trying to cut off the funding for the program, for the way, suddenly became the teacher who was now engaged in a very different goal. Because for Paul, 
as he became known, education was now about salvation. It was about what God was really doing, and he missed very few opportunities to talk about it. Look at chapter 13 of the book of Acts. We'll just skim through a few. Acts chapter 13, when he began to speak in the synagogue in one of his travels, it says in verse 42 of Acts 13, when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. We've often made a point of saying he missed an opportunity to tell them that Sunday was okay. Of course, he missed it on purpose. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. He had quite an impact, and he never missed an opportunity to demonstrate and talk about the message that he'd been given, the burden on his shoulders. But trouble, of course, verse 50, the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. So you get thrown out of one city, go on to the next. The disciples, it says, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. It goes on in chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. More trouble. But it says they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly. And they were, he was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Verse 7, they were preaching the gospel there in Lystra. A certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And then they were about to sacrifice to him. They brought oxen, it says in verse 13, and they were going to offer sacrifices. They called Barnabas Zeus or Jupiter, and Paul, it says, Hermes or Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. I guess you might say he was the teacher and the preacher and the educator and the one who very seldom missed an opportunity. And his life continued. But you know what? In the same chapter, guess what happens? Verse 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium, uh-oh, the two troubled cities of the past, came and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. It doesn't say whether he was or not, but they thought he was. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe, and then look at what they do. In verse 21, when they had preached the gospel of that city and made many disciples, they returned to the three cities who had given them so much trouble. Now, I was originally from the state of Missouri. I was born in Missouri, and I'm told that it has a reputation. Uh, the show-me state, I've heard terms like stubborn as a Missouri mule. 
I know nothing of those things. I'm a very affable fellow. Well, don't ask too many who've known me for too long. But <laughs> there's no way my choice would be to go back to where I came from when they were throwing rocks at me and leaving me for dead. Brave man. Why did he do those things? Why would Paul do that? And Barnabas. Because, brethren, education in God's way is about salvation. The Bereans were told in chapter 17, dug into these things. They were fair-minded, verses 11, 12, 13. And we find that they studied to prove these things, searched daily scriptures to find out whether these things were so. They were studying, they were learning, they had their noses buried in the book, as you heard in the sermonette. Well, the scrolls. And we find later on in the chapter that he is faced by doubters. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, verse 18, encountered him and they said, what does this babbler want to say? Yak, 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 yada, 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 yada. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, which was going some for the Greeks. Greek philosophy. Others, that he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? You're bringing some strange thing to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And here's a rather telling verse, verse 21. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And Paul said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Wasn't he tactful? Wasn't he tactful? For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So he says, the one whom you worship without knowing, that's who I'm talking to you about. Well, it's a, a way to establish a rapport with your audience. And so we find as we go through the chapter that some of them thought, well, you know what, that's, that's interesting. We'd like to hear more. And others said, not for me. Keep reading the account on your own. It's a fascinating story of a dedicated teacher of God's way, so much dedication that he encountered and endured to be able to keep educating. He endured hardships, he endured persecution, he would not give up. Educating those who were being called to the knowledge of God's way, of his way to life. It says in chapter 18 and verse 11 that he continued there a year and six months in Corinth teaching the word of God among them, teaching. We meet some colleagues of the way in this chapter, some names that will be familiar to you, Apollos, Aquila, Aquila Priscilla, who he seems to have a, have a special relationship with Aquila and Priscilla. One of his letters, he even uses what sounds like a, you know, a nickname or a pet name. He calls her Prisca, Prisca and Aquila. It's kind of touching. Chapters 19, 20, 21, so much more happens. I love the classic description of a mob in chapter 19 and verse 32. 
If this doesn't describe most mobs in history, I don't know what does. It says, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. Doesn't that describe most of the mobs you've ever heard about? Most of them don't have a clue why they're there. It's just in some cases, they just like to be where there's trouble. And that's sad. What a commentary on human nature, how much there needs to be change and healing. The story continues through the rest of the book of Acts. We find by the time we get down to chapter 25 that Paul's in trouble. And he's in the dock to answer questions about what he's teaching. And there are accusations. And finally, Paul, afraid that the whole ridiculous merry-go-round would have no end, appeals to Caesar, his right as a Roman citizen in Acts 25, verses 9 and 10. Festus, it says, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem, he was in Caesarea, and be judged there before me concerning these things? And Paul said, Not a chance. Not a chance. You take me back to Jerusalem. I know how that's going to turn out. He said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat. I am here in Caesarea, the city named after Caesar. I am here. I've been brought here. I've asked to be judged here. Since I'm a Roman citizen, I don't want to go back to Jerusalem. I appeal to Caesar himself. That's my right as a Roman. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you very well know. He says, I ought to be judged at Caesar's judgment seat. If you won't do it here, then I, I'm, I appeal to the next step. What a life he had. Let's take a closer look for a moment at Acts 26. Agrippa said to Paul, because Festus, finding out that Agrippa wanted to meet him and hear what he had to say, step up, he, Agrippa said, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. And basically, as he gets down to verse 4, as he gets into the case, he said, My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. They can have no complaints about my credentials. They know where I came from. And now I stand and I'm judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He talks about his past goals in verse 9. He said, indeed, I myself thought that I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And then he talks about his agony. In verses 10 and 11, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. It's been speculated what that means. I really won't get into that at this point. But clearly, he had a view, and he had a perspective, and he had a very different look from what he came to have later. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. How would that rest on your conscience? And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
then he talks about the road to Damascus and what happened. And he begins once again to relate the story of his education. While thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. We read that already. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Catch those words. To make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of things which I will yet reveal to you, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. And look at what his goal would become. Look at what his new job description was. It was an educator. To open their eyes. I've talked often with my wife in her years of substitute teaching, and she talks about some good days when the lights go on. I knew when it was not a good day when I would get a text at about 3.45 saying, please make me a Long Island iced tea by the time I get home. She didn't say that always. Sometimes it was gin and tonic. But the light's going on. That makes all the difference. In order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What's he talking about? He had a new goal in life, one given to him by the greatest educator who ever lived. For this purpose, I have appeared to you. Ananias was told that too. He is a chosen vessel of mine. Kendrick Diaz told you he had a question for you. It's one of my favorite techniques in speaking. I figure why should I do all the work in the sermons? I ask lots of questions and on rare occasions I supply the answers. I figure you should do some of the work too. What's our purpose in life? What is your purpose in life. As we used to hear many years ago, why are we here? Why are we here? What is our goal? What is life about? Verse 18 answers to open their eyes. For Paul, this was his specific charge, to turn them from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they might receive forgiveness and sins of sins and an inheritance. Again, I ask, what's he talking about? What is our inheritance? What does that mean when we hear those words? What does the future hold? This was Paul's new way of educating others 
to God's way. And once again, we find the phrase, education is salvation. Education is salvation. Education in God's way is. True education is. Now, of course, Paul would continue to have opposition. This same chapter in verse 24, he made his defense. Festus, the Roman procurator, said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. You're crazy. But he said, I'm not mad. I'm not out of my mind, most noble Festus, but I speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. He was a bold man. <laughs> king Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. You're a very persuasive fellow. And you know, the result of the end of the chapter is that Agrippa tells Festus he could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, which was a translation of saying, boy, did you ever bungle this one? Well, that's 1 Johnson 3, 4. Uh, whichever Johnson you want to ascribe that to is totally up to you. We Johnson boys kind of work together sometimes. What a challenging life Paul faced. For Paul, there would be a lifetime of service, teaching. Though in his introspective moments, the memory, <clears throat> the memory of where he started must have never left him. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, every time I read those words, I, I think about internal memories, debates, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of all the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Remember what one of the things was that Ananias was told? Ananias was told, you go do what I'm telling you, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name. But I think in that suffering, there was a purging and a deliverance and a forgiveness. What a life of one of the greatest teachers of the Bible. But you know, there's something else in this very chapter. In 1 Corinthians 15, the first two verses. Moreover, brethren, in other words, in, all, in addition to all the things I've already told you about, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if, huge word, two letters, you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, if you don't quit, if you never stop learning, if you never stop studying and being educated in God's way, then this teaching, this gospel, this message, this education, this curriculum is salvation. 
That's where you're headed. That's the direction you're going. Many years ago, many of us, the old timers, have memories of hearing that reversed. You know, sometimes when you hold up a mirror, my wife and I were talking about the sermon and it I, was, I admit, I was, it just wasn't coming together. I was telling Mr. David Johnson this the other night. He said, oh, I hate that thought. I hate that when that happens. It just doesn't work. I said, I know. And for some reason, at 2.15 Friday morning, I sat bolt upright in bed and says, I've got it. Hello. By 3 a.m., the notes were scribbled out. It would take a little more work. but So in the morning, I started to tell my wife about it, and I said, you're not going to believe this. And she said, turn it around the other way. I said, why didn't you tell me that last night? But we had the same thought, same thought, which I thought was interesting. So start not with this statement, salvation is education. That's the phrase we used to hear sometimes years ago, but start the other way. Education is salvation. And as my wife said, hold it up in a mirror. Well, the letters are all backwards, too, but I think you get the point. Turn it around. It's reversed. When we're talking about God's way, is it too much to suggest that salvation is education? It's education in God's way. Now, we have to apply it. That's where the letter, big two-letter word if comes in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 2. That's the if. There's no problem with God's side. He will not let us down. The trick is, we don't want to let him down. I don't ever recall hearing a detailed explanation behind those words that we used to hear on occasion, salvation is education, but I wonder if that's what it was. I wonder if we've stumbled across it. Because you know, Paul, in some of his letters, would make statements. In Philippians 4 and verse 1, I won't turn there, but he talks about my beloved, my crown in the Lord. And I heard the words in my head, it seemed, we are your symphony. We are your symphony. We are your efforts. We are the fruit of your labors. You are my crown. Where is your story in all of this? This special Sabbath acknowledges the achievements of the ninth graduating class of Foundation Institute. I find it more than a little interesting that a key verse we've looked at in this new class, Modern Church History this year, uses that very word. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, let's look at verse 7. Paul says to Timothy in his, we believe what we believe is his final letter, Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. What is that? It's education. It's education. And then verse 19 after describing some who had strayed, some who hadn't held to the course, some who had neglected that big two-letter word if, 
Then he says in verse 19, nevertheless, no matter what happens with human beings who can be and are always flawed to one degree or another, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands sure, stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, which we know is lawlessness or breaking God's law. And several places are quite clear on what that means. The solid foundation of God stands sure. A foundation is a strange thing. When a building's being built, you may not see a whole lot going on when they're working on the foundation. But if it isn't solid, no matter how beautiful the structure looks, as we know from one of Christ's examples in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the houses that were built on the rock and the sand. They looked identical, apparently, at least the descriptions are identical. But what mattered was what they were built on. What's your foundation? Where was it constructed? Paul talks about giving understanding, education, and he talks about the foundation stands because he says the Lord knows those who are his. We were just in 1 Corinthians 15, and I find another statement there also interesting. Because it says, as he outlines an overview of God's plan to the church, he says in verse 22 and 23, as in Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Remember that verse in 2 Timothy? The foundation stands sure. Foundation of what? Is it too much of a stretch to talk about the plan for the future? God's family? The Lord knows those who are his. And here we are talking about Jesus Christ's return, and it says, each one in his own order. Christ was the firstfruits, then those who are his at his coming. Seems like there's a connection. It seems to be staring us in the face once more. Education in God's way is salvation, leads to salvation. And the mirror image looks like it works too. Salvation is education. Education is salvation. For you mathematics <clears throat> proponents and aficionados, if there's an equal sign in there, it generally means that they're equal. I know that was profound, no charge. but it requires education in God's way. Daniel was told about a time to come when people would run to and fro and knowledge would be increased. Does that sound like a world you know? Sometimes we worry that a la George Orwell in 1984, Big Brother is watching and there's certainly a concern about that. But I wonder, I wonder about the other concept that we will be so awash in information that we will not be able 
to distinguish the trivial from the important, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World. That also sounds to be scary. You know what happens in our lives, brethren? The if is critically important. Because we read in <clears throat> Jesus' words <clears throat> in the Sermon on the Mount, sorry, in the Olivet Prophecy, got the mountains wrong, the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24, verse 13, he who endures to the end shall be saved. There is an aspect of salvation that isn't accomplished until the return of Jesus Christ, until a death in the faith or being changed at his return. You and I need to stick with it. We need to stay focused. We need to keep on being educated. It never stops. I appreciated the story about the little child who asked the mom, how long is it until you finish that book? Never. Never. Not this book. Not this one. It's like an onion. You just keep peeling back the layers and sometimes you cry and you peel back the layers and you keep going and you keep reading and you keep studying and you know that there's a future. Mr. Holland didn't know it as the years went by, but he had found a new purpose in life. His purpose was not to write a symphony, but he created one just the same. His life as a composer wasn't ending, it was commencing when he took that teaching job. It was just beginning. His students were the symphony. I remember a line from the movie where the red-headed young girl who became the governor of the state was so discouraged, so discouraged, she just couldn't seem to get it right with the clarinet. And he asked her, what are some of your favorite thoughts? What happens when you are encouraged, she says, well, my dad tells me that my red hair reminds him of the sunset. So he looked at her and said, so play the sunset. Play the sunset. Can you and I think of what's ahead? His students were the symphony. The apostle Paul was at the top of his class as a Pharisee. He said as much more than once in his letters I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I persecuted the church of God. And I wonder how many times those thoughts came back. He knew God forgave him. And can you imagine the incredible reunion in the first resurrection? Now there may be a little surprise on the faces of some who never knew that he was later converted, but I'm sure that there will be a joyful reunion. Paul's life as a Pharisee ended on the road to Damascus. But his life as a teacher of righteousness was only commencing. For both of them, education was the key. Mr. Holland, the Apostle Paul. One is fictional, the other is real. 
One was physical, although quite a touching story. The other has connections to the spiritual, to the permanent, to the eternal. But the permanence is only the beginning, too. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, both directions, the bright and the morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. So be it, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, so be it. When I was a teenager, I had an older edition. It was the old King James Version of the Bible. And I don't remember clearly all the words of the book and reading it. I remember noticing that the new King James was a little different. The current edition I'm using doesn't have it, but that old edition that I was using had two words down about halfway toward the bottom of the page after the end of Revelation chapter 22 and verse 31. Now they weren't there in the scripture. They were added by the publishers for that particular edition. And those two words were the end. And I remember once listening to a sermon and the pastor suggested, he says, why don't you take your pencil or your marker and cross those words out and write the beginning. I don't think that it's the end at all. There are things we don't know yet. There are things we want to learn. Because when you back up a chapter and you read in Revelation 21 and verse 4 and 5 and 6, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain. The former things will have passed away. He who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, these words are true and faithful. And he said, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It sounds to me like it's just the beginning. The thirst for godly knowledge, for his education, for his salvation will be permanent in our minds and hearts. In any way that truly matters, it's not the end. It's the beginning of real life. It is the commencement of eternity. So today, and we'll see it tomorrow, congratulations 
to the Foundation Institute class of 2021, the ninth graduating class. I just have one request from the rookie instructor now. Don't ever stop. <laughs>